Welcome to another episode of the Scrumcast. I'm Clayton Michael Ziggins. I'm Roy Vandewater. I'm Jade Meskill. I'm, I'm Derek Neighbors. <laughs> and I'm Mike Fizdo. There we go. All right, we got Mike and Derek on uh, Skype with us. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about the cost of change. Um, so when I hear that, I think of certain things, and I'm sure that you guys all think of other things. Uh, I'm just kind of curious, you know, Derek, from your perspective, um, what do you, what's kind of a general definition of that so we can get started? Of change or the cost of it? Yeah, what, what do you mean when you say cost of change? Who are we talking about? Who's involved? Um, I, um, I, 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 when, when, I'm, when I'm thinking of this, I'm thinking both at an individual level, I'm thinking at a team level, and I'm thinking at an organizational level. And so I think that a lot of times um, developers or uh, managers might say, you know, hey, I really want my team to do Scrum because we're going to get all these benefits. And they don't think about the ramifications that happen when they do that. So, you know, a number of things change, whether you implement pair programming, whether you, you know, have a wide open workspace. You know, I mean, I remember one of the first things to kind of change at Integrum um, when we really started, you know, uh, going full bore um, is we went away from personal desk and went to pairing stations and just the ramifications of um, people not having somewhere to put their some of their personal things and some of the emotional baggage that, that came out of that and that we had to deal with was certainly something we never even considered as being one of the, the byproducts or the problems with that. Um, um, up to, you know, what happens to HR when um, you have totally cross-functional teams and they're completely dependent on a job title to determine how to pay somebody or to determine how much square footage they get as an employee um, to um, you know I'm a CEO and now I've got an agile team that's doing an implementation that is starting to expose problems with maybe the way I incentivize my salespeople is actually damaging the organization and now I have to think about how I compensate salespeople um, to be different so that they can be a better part of the whole organization so to me, it's what are those elements of change and, um, you know, what, what can one really start to expect and how do, how do you cope with that? Uh, Mike, as someone who's um, maybe experienced some more of this stuff in a larger organization, kind of what Derek was talking about, where you maybe have a group of people that are cross-functional and it's hard, kind of uh, murky water to determine pay scales and bonus programs and those kind of things. Uh, you know, how, what, have, what are some patterns maybe you've seen or... Um, some things where people get it wrong? Uh, a lot of times they, they don't involve HR right away. And remember, HR and a lot of the large enterprise organizations have very different priorities than this little scrum team, maybe that's starting to take hold. And you really have to start to get on their radar early and often and understand that any kind of changes are going to be maybe years away. And And being able to get HR on board is especially important, uh, especially when you're talking about the matrix organizations where you have scrum teams working in large waterfall projects. Uh, so in terms of the, you know, you mentioned getting HR involved. Um, you know, there's a lot of times I think people, maybe this is true or not, but, you know, a lot of companies have, maybe slow-moving HR departments, or just in general, there's some red tape and bureaucracy. How does that contrast with the way that 
we think of agile and the way that we think of um, making change and implementing things quickly and iterating and all those things when the typical life cycle of doing almost anything is usually much longer than, say, a sprint. So part of that involves uh, really, again, getting people on board uh, ahead of time. And, and normally now when I start teams in large organizations, I'll let them know that they're probably going to take a hit on their performance evaluations within the first year because now they're not being specialized, right? They're working as, as cross-functional team members. And all of a sudden, uh, as a tester, let's say as a role, um, you're being compared to other testers within the functional organization. And with the traditional, you know, do you play well with other teams? Do you have your, you know, your nice PowerPoint presentations? Do you do your executive exposure? Do you play nice with others? Do you work on 20 projects at once? You don't rank that high against other testers that you're being uh, evaluated against. So um, being open and honest about this is really important. In, in Jade and Derek, uh, you know, as far as the you know, as Enneagram, we have maybe I, I would say more feedback uh, than a lot of organizations from the you know management to employee level, just because we're so flat. But when you have a traditional organization that wants to do like performance reviews, like Mike mentioned, um, and they have a very kind of set way of doing those things and managing that stuff, I think one of maybe the benefits of Agile you could get into is you could say there's a lot this extra feedback and you kind of know where you are a lot of the time and those kind of things. How do you think uh, the what what's like the reconciliation between those the traditional uh, project or sorry um, uh, review traditional personnel review and that kind of constant feedback and being part of a, a team, not necessarily an individual anymore. So, so I think, I think there's a, a multiple problems. So one is, you know, it is the content of the actual performance review relevant anymore. Um, meaning usually HR has a fairly good, um, uh, amount of weight that they're allowed to put into how you structure your performance review. And it's fairly, you know, standard to the book uh, type of format. And when you start to talk about, you know, being on an agile team, it's really more about values and principles and goals and a lot less about individual duties and what your job is specifically. And so a lot of times, you know, you don't have an actual performance review that matches what you're doing. The second problem that I, you know, two other problems I really see with the performance reviews um, are that they incentivize the individual instead of incentivize the team, which is obviously fairly contradictory to, um, you know, agile methodologies where it's it's really about the, the team instead of the individual. And then lastly is I think a, a lot of things that go along with performance evaluations deal with ranking employees and um, pitting, you know, this person against that person, and they actually create mistrust within a team. And, and so, you know, I, you know, the best best I would do if if I'm in in, in a situation would be um, to try to, to hold reviews or have the discussions that are much more honest, much more true outside of the performance review, and then you know, fill out whatever performance review is necessary to turn into HR. Um, to placate them and congruently be trying to get HR to change their practice so that they're um, 
you know, more in line with being an agile organization opposed to being kind of the dinosaur organization. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with, with what you're saying, Derek, but I also think that we do need to have some mechanism of dealing with the individual as well. You know, there, there's a lot of ramifications that a, a poorly performing or a bad fit can have on the whole team. And so creating those mechanisms that, that can deal with the individual behavior, you know, and, and I think tailoring the, the reviews and the feedback to the very specific individual person at that level is good. As long as you are also dealing with, you know, like you said, at more of the more of the team context as well, you know, and I think somewhere is is a balance between those two aspects. You know, you can't completely forsake the individual for the team, or vice versa. So I I, I think to me where the problem comes in is that the most performance reviews uh, are structured towards um, the the skill that you do. And I think that's a bad way to do it. So if, if you're monitoring me for um, how good of a software developer I am and it has to do with the amount of code I'm producing or, you know, the number of commits or, and I don't want to say necessarily metrics, but things related specifically to code, I don't know if that's a good representation of whether I'm a, a good individual for this team. Um, you know, there's, I think it's Tom Lister, um, uh, he'd, he'd said in one of the things that they, one of the things that they did when they looked at a number of teams um, in, in writing uh, their book Peopleware is they they asked like you know who who do you want to be on your team and why did you want that person to be on your team and in almost every organization there was at least one person that was on every single successful project and that when asked they were deemed one of the most valuable people on each one of those projects. But when they asked the people why, nobody could put their finger on it. And, and so I think what, what starts to happen is if you have a review that is simply a skill set, are you good binary at this task, yes or no, sometimes you rule out the best people because the best people to, to make teams successful or key people that make teams successful are the people that enable other people to do their best work. And so I think that, yes, you do need to take things at an individual level and review somebody individually. But I think we need to get to the point where we're evaluating people individually on how they adhere to the team's values and how they adhere to the team's principles, not to specific skill tasks. Meaning most people that want somebody off the team do not want somebody off the team because they think they do a bad job. They want them off the team because they think they're a bad fit for the team. Yeah, because I, I when they're a fit for the team, they'll figure out ways to help that person become competent in the area they need to be. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I, I guess I was going under the assumption that you were measuring and judging the individual on the, the proper things. But I, th I think that's a good point to, to point that out specifically. Yeah, so Roy, as someone who's been um, helping another team kind of adopt some of these um, agile principles and things, what are some things that you've experienced in terms of the cost of changing what what are who you know people that have been affected and, and what's kind of been happening there so so what i've been kind of seeing as more of the the social cost of change or emotional cost of change is that the when you're restructuring and trying to adopt the agile process there are times when you're going to have to have conversations in which two people are going to go into the conversation and either one person is going to have to change their way of doing things completely or one of the two has to leave and I think that that's a very difficult conversation to go into, and that's that's a significant cost of change that I, I don't think a lot of people 
um, necessarily think about when they're going into doing an adap- adoption like this. They're going into thinking it's going to be great, but then like there's going to be heads bumping and, and people are going to have to make a decision on if they want to adapt or, or leave the company or whatever they want to do. And we, we actually do find that there is, and, and I'm not sure where this statistic came from, uh, between 15 and 25% turnover uh, when you start to actually implement any kind of change like Scrum. And is that because Scrum doesn't leave a lot of room to kind of avoid the, the fierce conversations that need to be had? Yeah, you've got to have those difficult conversations, and some people do not want to do that. So that it, it is a significant cost of change. And, th- and that's not even on an individual employee level, you know, or the, the developer level. There's managers that don't want to deal with that either that, you know, get totally freaked out by having to deal with this conflict. And, you Absolutely. know, that, that's something I hear a lot is, oh, we're fighting all the time and it's horrible. And, you know, we used to get along and why is all this happening? And it's, it's really that you weren't really getting along, but everything was so shallow and surface level that there was really no room for conflict. And now that you're digging in and, and really trying to work together and, you know, get better, that's where you're starting to uncover a lot of this conflict. Yeah, like when you're going through that whole Bruce Tuckman model of forming, storming, norming, and performing, yep. a lot of times organizations are stuck in, in storming and it's just normal. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. They, and they, they shy away from the storming and they don't just push through to get to the norming part of it. Well, I don't think they, Absolutely. a lot of times they don't even realize that they're in the storming. Exactly. Uh, one thing, Jade, that you've mentioned before is the you kind of gave a, an anecdote about uh, the company wanted to adopt you know some agile principle, but they couldn't get their risk management software to work with the uh, you know the new way of doing things. And so, I would imagine that there's a lot of companies out there, big and small, that have invested significant amount of time and money and resources into um, getting some third-party tools or processes or anything like that. You know, how do we deal with uh, when we say, well, you know, we're going to get this new process, this new agile process, and that makes maybe it invalidates or makes this other thing that you've already spent a bunch of time and money on um, not effective or useless. You know, is that something that you think would be a, a total barrier, kind of a, a no go? Yeah, I think that's pretty scary for a lot of people. You know, not even just in the the software and the tools, but there might be entire departments that need to completely change. So, you know, if, if you have the QA department and the PMO and risk assessment and all these people that are in these you know gigantic silos and now you're telling me that they all need to be cross-functional and I need to completely change the structure of our organization to deal with that that's a terrifying thing to deal with and especially to not know what the outcome of that will be and one of the ways to really help get around this is to make sure you have some uh, executive Fire cover, yep. That that is able to say, okay, you know what? It's a sunk cost. Let's just do it and move on. Because you can't really have that at like, especially the large companies, the director levels that are really competing against each other, uh, versus the vice presidents who have more of the strategic look. Uh, you need somebody high enough to be able to say, you know, just let's let's do it and make the call. In your experience, Mike, how how often are you seeing that happen where where somebody's bold enough to to really give the teams enough runway and enough cover to to at least attempt a successful uh, change or implementation of of Agile? Very few. Yeah. 
Yep, and 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 a lot of it is really the the at the highest level they're not they don't really buy into it, so that could be a whole another conversation. Yeah, that's a good segue into uh, the next podcast then. Uh, so I want to say thanks to everyone uh, that represents Trump guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.